0: This is Dialogue with Drake and Debu. My name is Emma Drake.
1: And I am Sweta Naboo. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture.
0: The term fourth estate or fourth power is defined as the press, the profession of journalism. So naturally, the fifth estate goes one step beyond that, investigative journalism. Now, investigative journalism includes in depth reporting and detailed investigative pieces beyond everyday happenings. Now, many listeners would be familiar with this medium through CBC's program, The Fifth Estate.
1: With us today to talk about investigative journalism, drink tampering, abortion history, the We Charity, and the media's place in policy is Islander, Montrealer, CBC reporter, The Fifth Estate reporter, author, and mom to Mambo, Kate McKenna. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, our listeners don't know, but to get good Wi-Fi, you're currently outdoors uh, in the Montreal weather. So our first question for you is, how are you?
2: Oh, um, you know, I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, Sunday morning in Montreal and I got a coffee a few minutes ago and it's actually a beautiful day to be outdoors. Um, today, I think I'm going to do more Christmas decorating. I'm feeling good.
1: How are you? I'm doing great. I'm also looking forward to Christmas decorating. And the weather is actually kind of okay today compared to the rains of last week in Charlottetown. So I'm excited about that.
0: Yes, I think, Kate, this makes you the first ever guest who's taken uh, an interview outside. So um, there won't be a plaque or anything, but just <laughs> let the record show that... Uh, You have that title for the time being. (laughs) Let's jump right into it because on November 16th, you published a long-form investigative piece titled rash of drink spiking incidents goes unchecked by police in Charlottetown, which looks at incidents of potential roofies and sexual assaults in Charlottetown uh, with a very direct timeline in the early 2010s up until recently so what was the initial idea for this investigative piece and how did that kind of come to be
2: um i don't know about you guys um, but i had been hearing stories of drink tampering in Charlottetown since i was like in 1920 going to bars right like this is just something that I had kind of always heard about it had happened to friends of mine um and it was kind of just on the periphery of things that were spoken about um over the summer though um Kinley Dowling got in touch with me she's a musician Mm -hmm. and she she isn't somebody who I knew very well at that point or at all actually but we had a lot of mutual friends and so she got in touch with me and she said you want to go for coffee? And I said, sure, let's go for coffee. Um, And when I met with her, you know, I had known, I had seen her, she had been posting online being like, if you have stories about having uh, been drugged in Charlottetown, please get in contact with me. Um, And when when she and I had coffee, it was, I think, a couple of weeks after she had gone to police with these 17 stories and police had said that they weren't going to investigate. Um, So that was kind of the beginning. She said, is this something that you would want to do a news story about and I said absolutely um but there were you know like I, I work in Montreal right I'm a CBC reporter in Montreal so um I said let me just see what I can do kind of thing um and I, I yeah there, there were various things that happened in between then and and now but in uh, September I spent most of the month um September and October I spent most most of the month kind of digging into that and seeing, you know, what patterns we could see, and and talking to police, and and doing all of that journalism that then aired, I guess, two weeks ago.
0: That's super interesting, and um, I'm fairly confident that while 17 people reached out to to Kinley, I'm sure there's many others who uh, who who did not come forward and felt very represented by the story as well um when it did come out. So what were some of the major findings with this story? Because it's it's been everywhere the last couple of weeks, I feel so tell us about that. I just want to like um kind of
2: leap off of what you what you said at the beginning about people coming like more than 17 people having experienced this in Charlottetown. So in like the hours after we published that story, we heard from a lot more people, like a lot more people. And I know that Kinley and other people who are involved with this story have also heard from additional people. So I I definitely think that it's an area that still warrants um, some additional investigation in Charlottetown. Um, but I guess I guess the central question we were trying to solve at, or answer at the beginning is, why did police choose not to investigate uh, these 17 cases? Um, and so when we got in touch with the Charlottetown police, um, they d- did a very honest interview with me where they said, well, it's just not likely that we would uh, be able to gather enough evidence to press charges. Um, and then I asked, well, how many charges have been pressed over the last 20 years regarding uh, drink tampering or, or administering a noxious substance is the name of the of the legal charge? And the answer was zero. Um, and so I guess that was also one of the main findings, you know, nobody has ever been held responsible for doing this thing in Charlottetown that I certainly have heard um, to be an issue. Um, they say that they've received 16 complaints over the last 20 years. That's in a, that's including, uh, there were two that they published recently, um, um, I think in, in no, on November 5th, they said that they were investigating two additional cases of drink tampering, bringing the figure to 16, but yeah, I mean, I listened to your show with Dr. Rachel Crowder, and we know that these things are generally underreported to police, right? Um, and I, I I kind of felt like, after we we found out that there nobody had ever been held responsible for this crime, I started thinking, well, what are the ramifications of people not trusting police with their stories, and people believing that police will not be able to Actually, uh, hold someone accountable. So, what happens in a society where there's that that kind of uh, vacuum of traditional justice? And then I kind of started talking about the rumors um, that have been in the community. You know, like um, accusations of different people doing different things. As far as I can tell, never with hard proof, uh, and how damaging that can be. And so I, I kind of tried to get into that as well in, in the piece. Yeah.
0: It's so fascinating because it was kind of one of those things as you you said at the beginning it was kind of like everyone knows or everyone has an idea of of this happening and it's just kind of almost normalized to a point where it's just like well watch your drink like you know it, which is so terrifying the fact that that's kind of the narrative at, at you know to date that we're experiencing but I'm sure because of that and because things have been held under wraps for so long um, that there were also barriers with doing an investigative piece like this. So what were some of the challenges that you experienced investigating this?
2: Um, Can I riff a little bit off something you said at at the beginning? Um, I find PEI to be a very interesting place journalistically because it, it really feels like And this is not a slight on on the other journalists there who I think are amazing. Um, But there always has seemed to be this culture of the way PEI presents itself to the world and then kind of the things that are just a little bit under the surface, right? Um, And this would be an example of one of those things that kind of everybody knows about, but there's no there was very little kind of written record of it, journalism or otherwise, and and I think that there are a few things like that on PEI that kind of warrant additional digging, but that's just me riffing a little bit. Um, what were the barriers in terms of doing this? So when Kinley um, gave me uh, the, the reports as given to police, right, so 11 of them were anonymous. Um, And we when we do investigative journalism or any journalism, really, we we have to make sure that what we're doing is fair and balanced and uh, we have to do as much work to try and figure out who these people are and, and, you know, um, kind of what their stories are and and whether or not it it would be worth the police taking the time to investigate them. Right. Like we don't want to be just throwing out um, allegations without having a little bit behind them um so yeah so when kinley gave me the 17 um, cases. Um, I, I called the the ones that weren't anonymous, and then I slowly worked up the trust with the additional um, eleven or as many as them, uh, that that would let me talk to them to kind of get their story as well. Which we we did those interviews on background, meaning I didn't publish their names um, or in a lot of cases the specifics or so the information that would out them. Um, but yeah, I mean that was a barrier, um, but it it was. It was ultimately uh, the vast majority of people uh, chose to cooperate in our investigation, um, which i'm I'm really thankful for. Uh, I guess another barrier for me personally was that, because when I got these complaints, a lot of them were anonymous, right? So um I guess I hadn't realized or hadn't thought about it, but you know, I was part of that scene in two thousand eleven um so I was kind of saddened to learn that I know a lot of these people right like that was kind of like a, a gut punch every time that happened and of course they're horrible stories regardless of who they happened to but just knowing that this was happening um so close to what would have been my friend group back then was was a little bit was a little bit tough um, and then I guess additional barriers I mean um, the police ultimately did uh, choose to cooperate, which which we're thankful for. But uh, you know, it took a few days, uh, but that's okay um, because they they did ultimately give me uh, a, a long and, and fair interview, so
0: it was good. Yeah, those are those are all really fair points, and since then i feel like i've seen this article like every single day you know be it on twitter or um, even having co-workers here in ottawa asking about it so i feel like it's it's just totally exploded into the stratosphere in terms of um you know coverage so what has that reception been like and you know if any are there next steps moving forward
2: oh that's a great question um um, it's it's nice to see that our work is resonating with people. Um, I guess the fundamental question I'm asking is is kind of why, uh, like, uh what is it about this topic that um, is triggering this sort of response? I will say that the week that it was published, there was uh, a couple of other things about kind of alluding to sexual assault in the news, like uh, Lil- Lynn Lund's uh, NDA bill was also in the news, and I feel like it kind of dug up some stuff for people some some kind of lack of accountability for things that had happened years ago and and i don't know i don't know if that's if that's what caused it to resonate so much with people Um, but i do think that kind of as i was saying earlier um it's a subject that hasn't been talked about in the open very much um despite Like, as you said, like one of the people I spoke with said, like her sister used to joke about, oh, don't get roofied. We've all gotten roofied. Um, So you and and your younger cohort don't get roofied. And it's like it's something that's been very much percolating just beneath the surface. And then we kind of brought it up to the surface. And I I think that that uh, played a big role in why people are reacting to it.
1: Yeah, I, I was reflecting on a number of things you said throughout and, you know, What I'm thinking about the most is how there's always been kind of a whisper network on PEI where, you know, oh, be careful, um, you know, if you see so-and-so, but there's never been any kind of um, hope or insinuation that something would come out of it. You'd always think it'll always just be chatter and, you know, there's no progress. So honestly, really happy this article came out. And, uh, you know, and going forward, I think just talking with people is, What do everyone want to see coming out of this article? Kate, uh, this is not your first experience, however, with documenting issues uh, faced uh, primarily by women on PEI. In 2018, you published No Choice, the 30-Year Fight uh, for Abortion on Prince Edward Island. And this is a book that looks at documenting the experiences of advocates in trying to lift the abortion ban on PI for decades up until March, 2016, when then Premier Year Wade McLaughlin announced a women's reproductive health center in Summerside. So what was that whole investigative and documenting process, you know, that ultimately leads to a book?
2: Oh man. It's so funny because like now that the pandemic has happened, that feels like 80 lifetimes ago, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I've been really blessed. Um, I was really blessed because early in my career, well, literally right at the beginning of my career, I did internships at the uh, investigative unit in Toronto and uh, with the Fifth Estate. And so when I was at those places, um, the producers there uh, taught me how to organize my information um, in a way that, that makes it easier to see patterns and to uh, kind of build chronologies and that sort of thing. And actually, one of the kind of, main things I've learned about investigative journalism through working with Harvey Kasher, who's the producer of the We documentary, which I, I think we'll get to, but, um, is it's almost as important to organize your information well as it is to get good information, right? Because um you you can't you cannot make errors. Uh, like small errors, big errors. You cannot make errors on serious stories like this because it totally undermines your credibility. Um and uh, it's important to be able to see things chronology or chronologically, rather, because when you see things chronologically, they make sense to you. It's like it's it, it almost tells you your information almost tells you the story itself right um but I loved researching that book so like a little bit of context is like the book is kind of split into two sections right like the first is before 2011 and then the second is after 2011 and uh the reason that I wrote that book is because before I was a journalist I was I was very much involved in the activism to uh, repatriate or maybe rematriate abortion to PEI um And so that's kind of actually why I wanted to go into journalism, because I saw the impact that, you know, the written word or, or broadcast could have on policy. Um, But that's a bit of a tangent. Um, So there was a couple summers ago, I just went and I lived in the microfiche at the UPEI library. Um, Simon Lloyd, shout out, Simon Lloyd, the librarian there. Um, They have a whole section on PEI abortion. So I could just go and like, I guess it's not screenshotting. I guess it's just making digital imprints of all of the uh, old newspaper articles that existed. And then I'd underline all the little names um, in those older articles. And I'd call those people if they were still around um, and talk to them about their experience. And um, basically to write that book, I made one giant timeline starting from, I believe, 69 to present day. Um, And then I divided up the, uh, the chapters that way. I mean, some years there's, not a whole lot that happened, like basically 69 through like 81, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a great project. And I'm really thankful to the women involved who let me use their story, particularly because at that point I, I was kind of like, you know, I was a pretty young journalist, so I, I really appreciated uh, their role in allowing that to happen.
1: That's so fascinating and so thorough. I'm just envisioning young Kate in the basement of the Robertson Library looking at uh, microfiche and so trying to figure out how to develop the timeline. So there was obviously such an immense amount of work and love that went into this and, and the book speaks to that. But how would you compare, you know, uh, writing a book such as No Choice with an investigative piece, such as the one on drink spiking with everyday reporting, which is, you know, what folks tend to know the most when it comes to journalism?
2: Hmm. That's a great question. And I've spent most of my
1: career as a daily journalist, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the process is a lot. How to describe it? Um, so you go in in the morning and you know that by the end of the day, you have to fill a two minutes slot or, or you know, depending on or 500 word article or that sort of thing, Um and so your process is a lot more condensed, obviously. Um, really great local journalists, really great daily local journalists bring a lot of context and um thoughtfulness and and kind of for lack of a better word, hustle into what they do on a daily basis. So the so you know, I, I can think of uh somebody at the PEI Bureau who recently there was a story and they said, Oh, I know exactly who to call. And, and so they called the right person, you know, and, and got the got the story. Um, but uh It's just it's daily journalism. The truth is relies more on interviews, um, whereas investigative journalism uh, relies more on documents um, and and accountability and usually involves uncovering something that somebody is actively trying to cover up. Right. Um, And for that reason, it's it takes longer uh, because those things are harder to do. Now, I think a lot of daily journalists would come back and say, well, actually, I have to deal with communications people every day. And those people are not always acting in the best interest or or they're not they're not paid by the truth. Right. Like they're paid by whatever organization um, whose reputation they're defending. Um, And so even in daily news, there's a lot of. (laughs) Hustle to try and find out what's actually true um, versus what what you're being told kind of thing, uh, but I mean the, the short answer is just like you have a, a tight deadline and you have to make a story work within a tight deadline and and as a result, the kinds of stories that um, you're going to be doing are um, different in scope smaller in scope, um, more, more doable in an, in a 12 hour window, right? Like you're not going to try to, um, get to the bottom of offshore banking in eight hours. Um, you're more likely to cover a craft fair and reflect the community back to itself in eight hours. And that's okay because both of those things, um, serve your audience in different ways.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important to recognize. It's not that like one is more valuable than the other and then and, and oftentimes, you know a daily piece could then turn into you know an investigative piece and they they overlap I think too so um, really great points um, one really cool thing that you've been able to do which I know a lot of folks from PEI um, you know I know watching as a kid like after the national and kind of like really idolizing it is your work with the fifth estate and one thing that you've been working on is, for example, um, documentary format news reports that looks at in-depth reporting uh, in detailed investigative pieces. So um, how did you come to first work for the Fifth Estate?
2: That's a great question. And I, I love I love that nerdiness that, you know, like exactly the time slot and everything. Um. So so I interned there uh, when I I did a a scholarship um, called the Joan Donaldson Scholarship, which is available for people who are just graduating university and you kind of get to pick where where you want to work in the CBC. And I was always wanting to do kind of impact investigative journalism. So uh, one of the ones I chose was the Fifth Estate. But uh, my internship ended and I I moved on to other projects and um, I didn't work with them until... I guess last like October, maybe Um, I was so lucky uh, the head of the fifth estate at that point had put out, uh, I believe, a a message to all of the um, heads of local news, like all of the local newsrooms across Canada. And so uh, they said, like, we're looking for an associate producer. Is there anybody who you would recommend for a, a brief secondment to the Fifth Estate? And, and my boss put me up and I was so thankful. And when I found out that was happening, I called the exec of the Fifth Estate and I just lobbied and lobbied and lobbied for it to be me because I really wanted that um, experience. And so, yeah, I started that. Um, I was assigned to the We Charity project. So so there were actually two docs, uh, two documentaries on We Charity. There was one that ran in February and then one that ran in November. Um, and so I was one of the APs, the associate producers on the first one. And then as well on, on the second one, I, I just kind of stayed with the fifth um, until, I guess, September or so, I think, or August, perhaps. All, all of these months are kind of blurring in my
0: brain. That's so cool. And I think one thing that's really interesting is, you know, we we know that Fifth Estate, you know, there's kind of the brand recognition around it. But in terms of your day to day experience, Kate, like what does that look like? How do you folks pick topics? What do the timelines look like? You know, I'm sure it's, it's different from project to project. But what does that kind of behind the scenes life look like at the Fifth Estate?
2: Um, well, I have to give like major shout out to the person who was my boss when I was there, uh, Harvey Cashler. He's a producer and he's like legendary, right? Like he's like, I don't know if it's appropriate to call him an OG of investigative journalism in Canada, but he he definitely is. He's been doing it for like 30 years um, and he has like trained this like small army of um, APs like people such as myself who are kind of getting into investigative journalism uh, with his uh, very particular methods of organization or organizing information um, kind of like what I was what I was referencing before putting it in order chronologically making a self-referential system so you know just by looking at it where you got the information what date it was collected um, what day uh, what day it was created if it's like let's say a a clipping like an old uh, uh, newspaper file or something like that um so what did what did my day-to-day look like as an ap um well we kind of we knew that we were in the middle of the season for the first one and so uh there they had already chosen well, by the time i came on board they had already chosen uh the subject of, of We charity uh for a documentary so it was my job to, to research uh, i did a lot of research um talking to as many people as possible. Um, I guess one of the key differences in investigative journalism versus daily journalism is all of the conversations that we had at the, at least when I was there working with Harvey at the 5th, were they're on background, which means like they're not, you can have kind of a a more frank conversation with somebody when they know that the information um, that they're sharing is not going to be published with their name attached so that you kind of have like some exploratory conversations with a number of people and you build sources and you try and find additional people to talk to. So I did a lot of that. I did a lot of uh, kind of meeting people and talking to them and, and seeing like with that first, uh, we doc, uh, we documentary, we were really open mind, like extremely like we'll go where the facts take us kind of thing. And, and for the second one as well, but, uh, we didn't have a, an angle uh when i came on there it wasn't clear what the angle was going to be so it was my job to work with harvey and kind of see what the people we were talking to told us and then and then build it from there and then of course when you're in production it's like it's amazing it's it's incredible it's like it's so much fun um Harvey and uh, Mark Kelly uh, built the script and um, we uh, go through the edits with the editor and we make sure everybody has the tape that they need. And um, it's just really cool to see the work that you've been talking about. You can actually vis- visually see it because it's a documentary and you can tweak it and it's, oh, it's it's a brilliant experience. I'd recommend it for anyone who is interested in sort of documentary making.
1: That's awesome. And, you know, you talked about it uh in the previous question a bit, but um, a lot of the work that you have been doing has been around uh, the We Charity documentaries, uh, be it looking at the impact of the organization to the leadership, to donor communications. So just for our listeners, can you give us a very high level uh, description of the We Charity project?
2: Yeah, so the first one we did um, was sort of an overview. Uh, it had it definitely had um, investigative elements um, strong investigative elements but it sort of looked at the beginning of We Charity and how it grew and then kind of uh, what happened uh, last year when they got the uh, Canada student grant and program and and how um, that didn't go well politically I don't know if you remember that story but uh, yeah so that was kind of the crux of the first doc, a sort of overview kind of thing. Um, but then um, shortly after that documentary aired, we heard in a parliamentary um, committee from a donor who believed that he had paid for uh, a school in memory of his son. This this man's name is Reed Cowan. Um, and uh, then he went back and he found another person's plaque uh, was on that school. Um, and so he was upset, obviously, understandably upset, because he he believed that he had paid for this school and then um, found that somebody else's name was on it. And at the time, We Charity said that was a mistake. We've apologized to Mr. Cowan, but um, Harvey and, and other people at the Fifth Estate thought, well, okay, so we know that this happened in this case. We know that We Charity has said that they built 360 primary schools. So has it happened in other cases? Um, and so we we spent the summer um, kind of digging and talking to people who believed that they had purchased schools and and um, seeing if there were a corresponding number of people who believed that they had spent enough money to purchase the school houses um, and actual school houses that had been built. And so, you know, I believe, so We Charity had said that, that there were 360 schools, um, our own digging found about 900 primary schools those numbers don't correspond um so mark and harvey markelly and harvey uh went to kenya uh, where these schools were located to try to count them (laughs) Um, and they also found that there were far fewer schools uh, in some of the actual kenyan villages than Our spreadsheets um, of people who believe that they had paid for schools uh, seem to indicate. Now, We Charity denies all of this Uh, fervently. They say that they've always been very uh, clear and and transparent with donors. Um, Of course, we spoke with a couple of donors who didn't feel that way. Um, But uh, We Charity certainly defends its record.
1: Wow, that's, that's a really interesting uh, turn of events. But you know, in a high profile news item like this one with, you know, a number of players, stakeholders, there are several uh, journalists involved and things are happening across continents, be it, you know, something happening in Kenya, something happening in Canada, how is it, how's the process in ensuring that, you know, the facts that are being reported are as accurate as possible?
2: Yeah, the process at the Fifth Estate is the most thorough, uh, fair, detailed system I have ever worked on or seen in my life. I mean, I'm not I'm not joking when I say Harvey's um, that that our organizational system um, was so thorough and so self-referential. Like if I if I wrote any sort of piece of information, I would have the corresponding link or the corresponding uh, evidence next to it. Um, So the way that we build our systems is like that, so that it's easy to check facts. Um, But then when you're actually building a script, there's a very intense fact-checking process (laughs) um, that's usually involving like the highest level of staff at the fifth estate so the usually the senior producer um will go through it line by line and it's it's uh it's it's difficult but it's important um and then after the fact checking or before the fact checking i'm not sure what happened in this case because i've actually been off off of the we charity project since uh, august or so but um it, it all has to go through a lawyer um right when you're making comments about somebody uh, that they might interpret to be defamatory, um, then, you know, you have to convince a lawyer that uh, what you're saying is fair and accurate. Um, and that is also kind of a line by line occasionally vet. I'm not sure what it was in this case, but I've certainly been in, in uh, lawyering meetings where they will they will stop on a particular uh, line and really drill down on it and say, okay, well, what evidence do you have for that? And you have to make the case to them. You have to show them your evidence. Um, and only then will you get the green light to publish. So it's it's a very, and it should be a really, really um, robust process because these are, you know, serious allegations we're making and in investigative in journalism. And you need to be able to back up what you're saying because, you know... It's it's important it's important that when you're making um, allegations against somebody that could affect their reputation that you be able to back up what
0: what you're saying. That's so interesting, and I think like you know, obviously I've stated my bias that I'm a big fan of the Fifth Estate, but I think hearing about the checks and balances that are in place truly at every step of the way and kind of the investigative, but also kind of legal backing that's associated with it. I think that's super cool and, and makes it just like a much more kind of like trustworthy and valuable process, at least from like a a reader or kind of like consumer perspective, which is, is neat to hear. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit and sweater might laugh, but I threw this question in only because (laughs) this is a top of mind. So as listeners may know, currently pursuing my master's in public policy and we always talk about kind of the different stages of the policy process. One we talk about actually quite a bit is the role of media and how that intersects with politics, how they consider that with the policy process, but from your perspective, Kate, you know, we know that journalism and politics go hand in hand. How do you feel the investigative pieces, such as the ones that you've worked on, impact the policy process or political considerations?
2: Mm, It's a great question. And actually, that question was kind of fundamental to um, kind of why I decided to go into journalism, right? Like, I I have long felt that impact journalism has tremendous ability to sway uh, public discourse, um, right? More so, not more so, but... For me, when I was younger, I thought, do I want to be an advocate? Do I want to be uh, an activist? Or do I want to be a journalist? Um, and ultimately, I decided on journalists, because I feel that you have a direct relationship with the public in, in a way that you don't necessarily in those other positions. And when you uh, do present a story that shows wrongdoing or uh, some sort of cover-up, I'm not saying either of the two stories that we reference do, but often investigation does, um, then that often kind of uh, prompts action, gets impact, um, has uh, has parliament or, uh, you know, in the case of the policing one, I know that one of the committee's uh, health and social, I forget, but one of the PEI uh, committees is um, going to be talking about druggings and and, uh, and uh, how they're policed in Charlottetown. So that's some like immediate reaction at, you know, the highest level in, in PEI. And that's really cool. Um, and I think that that's a very large part of why we do what we do. Um, and it's certainly one of the things that motivated me to be a journalist.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. And, you know, it really... Uh, speaks to the power of the media as the fourth estate. Sorry, that's a bad joke. Uh, but, you know, you've touched on this earlier uh, a few times, talking about kind of your starts in journalism. And uh, listeners might not know, but, you know, you started out with a very prestigious student newspaper at UPI called The Cadre. So, uh, thus uh tell us, how did you first get involved in journalism and how has that really shaped your career, Dave?
2: Um- Uh, Shout outs to the cadre. We love the cadre. Um, They continue to thrive and I'm happy for them. Um, So actually my, okay, so this is what happened. I love telling this story. Um, So when I was in second year, I was a poli-sci student. Were you guys also both poli-sci students at UPEI? Yeah. So there was this really great prof um, who just disappeared. And he was really nice to me, and he was a great prof, and I loved his courses. Um, And then the next year, he just wasn't on the sked at all. Like, you couldn't take any courses from him. And I was like, what's that about? And so I'd go up to the department, and I'd be like, what happened to such and such, professor? And they'd be like, shh, we're not talking about that. And I'm like, what's going on? And so um, I called the local media. They didn't care, (laughs) Uh, because this is obviously a very, like, UPEI issue um and so i said well i'm going to figure out what happened to this guy uh and so i launched prior to being the editor of the cadre me and my ridiculous friends launched our own kind of like alternative upei paper which was called the semantic um and kind of the sole goal at the beginning was to get to the bottom of what happened to this professor and actually we did find out what happened to him basically he was tenure track and um one of the other profs had been sort of forced to retire at the age of 65 um, and had uh, appealed that and won his appeal because you can't apparently force someone to retire. Um, and so as a result, my, my, the prof I liked was kind of shuffled away. I, I believe he got a job at another university. Um, and that became kind of a national news story. <laughs> and it, it just was born from the question of like, why isn't my favorite prof here anymore? (laughs) And I felt very empowered by, I don't know, that process. I mean, in my head now, I've probably overestimated my personal role in, in breaking that news story, but I remember it being a really exciting and fulfilling time. And so from there, we closed the semantic after one year and then just, you know, all my friends took over the cadre instead. Uh, and then briefly I worked in politics and, um, I didn't really like that. And, uh, Then the uh, pro-choice activism kicked off in 2011, and I saw the, again, the direct relationship that the media has with the public that we couldn't necessarily have as activists, and that inspired me to go back to school to become a journalist, even though everyone in my life told me I'd get no job. I did get a job. (laughs) So I'm very lucky in that way.
0: That is so cool. I did not know the whole backstory previous to that. And honestly, shout out to the poli-sci department at UPI. (laughs) Big supporters, I think, on this podcast. But that is so interesting. Yeah, you boiled it down great. I just wanted to know where my prof went. (laughs) That is so cool. And I mean, like, close up shop after one year. If you've got a national news story, like you know, go out on a high note, <laughs> I th- right? I think we wanted to be paid. I think was- <laughs> well, on that note, we'll transition to the most detail-oriented and investigative piece of this podcast, which is the beer panel, which is fairly deceptive because it's a beer panel only in name. Listeners know this is where we do recommend- recommendations on really everything. We've had a lot. it It's been beer. It's been vinegar pies. It's been, you know, the corn maze. There's really been everything under the sun. So Kate is our very special guest. What would you like to recommend to listeners?
2: Um, I have a very wholesome recommendation. I hope that that's okay. Um, We're coming into December. Um, I am recommending hot chocolate, but as an experience, like not just like a casual, oh, I'm out for a walk. I'm going to get a hot chocolate, but like calling up your friend and being like, Hey, let's get a hot chocolate and then going and sitting and consuming it in the same way that many people would consume a beer or another, like a glass of wine or whatever. It's just, I don't know. I think it elevates, um, it elevates the mood. It elevates kind of like the feeling of the seasons that we're currently in. Um, it's a very specific, I think, December thing to do. And I I recommend having a hot chocolate.
1: I think I can agree with that, especially if you've got like a bit of peppermint syrup to go with it to really get into the holiday mood. It, it is an experience.
0: That sounds delightful. That's <laughs> like a very like bon vivant type recommendation, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> mm. All right, sweata over to you. I'm scared we're going to have the same thing. And I'm going to be pissed if we do, because this happens every single for good time. So over to you. I feel like we might have similar themes, but different things, hopefully. Uh,
1: so as folks know, it's been raining all week in Charlottetown. And I was downtown the other day and I discovered receivers is doing hot cider uh, this season. And this is just, you know, a lifesaver in this weather. And just yesterday there was uh, the Victorian downtown market and it was raining and hailing and God knows what else. So having a hot cider was really, really good. Um, also it really helps me get into the spirit of things especially if you've got like some citrus and some cinnamon to go with it i find it delicious so um, i'm gonna jump off kate's hot chocolate and recommend hot cider
0: super cool and what goes better with hot chocolate or hot cider Than a great fucking book. I am here to recommend to folks no choice by none other than Kate McKenna. This is not the first time this book has been recommended on this podcast. I believe it's been recommended at least once before, if not multiple times. But for readers, this is like quintessential fun interesting shocking disgusting great reading Um, it's around I think a hundred pages or so so it's a quick read but it's just jam-packed with a 30-year history and really I think highlights a lot of the incredible leaders in the community on PEI, but as well kind of in the Maritime region as a whole who worked on the fight for abortion on PEI, I think it gives a really good case study of access to abortion, I think, in Canada, but in a very extreme uh, scenario. And I think it's something to be very mindful of uh, and thankful for that we do have a historical record that shows it. Um, It's a friggin' awesome book and I think everyone, I think it should be required reading like and i don't even read that much but it's uh i can't explain how much i love this book thank you so much that's very nice
1: (laughs) yeah i think also what i love about the book is that it almost seems like a blueprint for advocacy because i know we've chatted about this before kate it's looking at how all of these movements kind of start by similar grassroots activism and then move on to advocacy so if anyone really likes grassroots activism this is your book as well Thank you so much. That's very nice.
2: I think it's at the bookmark, if that if that uh, is helpful at
1: all. I think the bookmark still stocks it. I'm not sure. That's where I got my copy, so they do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And if folks can't find it at the bookmark, which should be your number one stop because it is a, a local business, downtown Charlottetown. For our listeners who are not on Pi, you can also get it at FernwoodPublishing.ca. So we'll we'll link that in the the post for this because we want to make sure people could get a copy.
1: They'll appreciate that.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of brings us to the end of our episode today, Kate. Uh, we hope you're not too cold out on the terrace in Montreal because I could see your breath kind of coming out throughout the interview, and I felt bad you were out in the cold, but. Thank you so much for chatting with us on your Sunday morning. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm, as I told you, number one podcast fan. I I look forward to listening to your future episodes in addition to your back catalog.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. This has been so fun. Uh, It's, yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Kate, and for braving the
0: Montreal cold for our listeners. Our opening and closing music is from Trakkity's very own Mr. Shane Pendergast. And as always, that's his song, "Gaspezy." We hope
1: you're staying warm
0: and staying safe. This has been Dialogue.